Hi, Sam. You're connected now, mate. Evening, you're right. Hair looks good, mate. Makeup's good. <laughs> yeah, you can't get that one wrong, really, as a hair cell. So Sam was messaging me saying, you know, basically, is there a video as well? Well, obviously, oh, apart from this. So I said, are you, are you worried about, you know, obviously, your, your overall appearance? <laughs> as you can see, we're not. I was no. mindful I was in sports gear, thinking, oh, God, I do a lot of running and going to the gym and martial arts. Yeah. That sort of keeps me on an even keel, really. We had, uh, we had Ofsted's. So we, uh, we we had a full week of it. We went from a Section 8 to a Section 5 full Monty in a week. Wow. I mean, it's done and it's, I, I, what's, I can't say what the grade is. It was all very good, um, but it was painful, really bloody painful, to be honest. Because yeah, we had the call on the Monday, inspected on the Tuesday, told we'd sort of sailed through the Section 8. And then they, the line that they kept using was, we'll be back sooner than later, 9.15 the next morning. They phone to say, we're going to be back in on Thursday, Friday. One inspector converts to seven, full section five, in the middle of a pandemic. You're like, cheers for that. Like I said to you, they definitely, they've been tracking you on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. I've poked the bear too many times yeah, with yeah. that one. Yeah. They just thought, you know what? Let's, let's bloody get him and make an example of him. <laughs> but you were ready, weren't you? You were ready. <laughs> and by the way, this is our last episode oh, of the season. So we started in the last week of January, and wow. the three of us worked together. And we just said, let's just let's just go and do it. Let's just you know what's there to lose. And now you're our twenty third episode, Good end God. of season one. <laughs> Twenty different countries. It's been listened, you know. In the analogy we used, didn't we? We're a group of lads on a night out, and we've ended up stumbling into the VIP area. And then all of a sudden, oh, there's Sam Strickland, you know, enjoying a nice oh glass God. of champagne. <laughs> and now we're having got... a glass of champagne with you. Yeah, we're just we're just really... photo bombing now. Just yeah. photo bombing oh everywhere. Really, we're just lads who should be on the carling. But actually, we sat with you. We sat with you behind the red rope. So oh, that's what we're doing with you. <laughs> Should we get going then, boys? Episode twenty-three, final episode of More Than a Job podcast. My name's Mike Bradford. Hi, I'm Jay Alderson. And My name is Daniel Bull. And for our final episode of the season, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome another special guest of the More Than A Job podcast. We're joined by Sam Strickland. Sam is the principal of a large all-through school and has helped to guide it to its GCSE results from the bottom 20% nationally to the top 20% and A-level outcomes to the top 5% nationally. The initial organiser of Research Ed Northampton, he is the leading voice in the current conversation in education. He has had educational resources and research published and has also delivered courses nationally and served as a lead facilitator for MPQSL. He is also the author of the hugely inspiring and influential books, Education Exposed, Leading a School in a Time of Uncertainty and in Pursuit of the Helician Dream. Knowledge itself is power sits at the core of Sam's educational philosophy and influences all that he does. Sam, welcome to our podcast. Thank you ever so much for having me. You're absolutely welcome. We're so pleased that, that we've managed to get you. It's been difficult at the last few weeks for you, which we'll talk about in due course. Can you give us a little bit of information about your journey through education, Sam, and why are you so passionate about education and making a difference to the lives of young people? Yeah, I started out, oh God, 20 odd years ago as a trainee under Christine Council at the University of Cambridge, uh, where I did a history PGCE 
in secondary education. I then started my career in, a, in an upper school, which starts in year nine, goes all the way through to year 13. And as an NQT, I uh, was blessed with teaching eight different subjects, five of which were to the old A2 standard and uh, a couple of AVCEs in there in business and leisure and tourism. So I was always in my NQT year about, I w- I'd like to say a sentence ahead of the kids in, in terms of the textbook, probably about half a word and praying in anything outside my wheelhouse of history and politics, because my degree's in history and politics, praying that no kid would ever ask me a question to be totally honest with you because I'd just stand there and go I don't really know I'll find out if I can and I, I, I stayed at that school for a good period of time I became head of history there I was put in charge of teaching and learning I worked um, across North Bedfordshire on the, uh, a skit consortium arrangement whilst I was at that school as well and then I moved to an all-girls school in Hertfordshire very very different setting very different type of school uh, a state school uh, there's a misconception that that was a private school from people when I say I, I worked in all-girls school uh, I was an assistant head teacher in charge of a sick form but also in charge of a consortium arrangement with two other schools within the town and that gave me again a really different insight to education from a very different angle with differing challenges as well you know it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination just a a walk in the park Uh, I then moved to an outstanding flagship school within a trust and I started out as a a vice principal overseeing student care with no heads a year no heads a house and no no sanctions at all Uh, and that's given me a very different kind of view perspective on behavior which I talk a lot about as I'm I'm sure you can imagine from what you've read in, in my book and gave me a very different insight into using restorative approaches which have got their time and place within reason but equally while I was at that school I wore every single hat you can imagine I was in charge of school improvement writing the CEF uh, helping with the curriculum with timetabling with data I became the acting uh, head of that school and I was seconded within that trust to a free school within the trust as well and then I moved to the current school I'm in now the Dustin School in Northamptonshire and I've been there since April 2017 so we're kind of entering now what is my fifth year of headship at this school and my sixth six and a half year of, of headship in general so two headships under my belt all very interesting <laughs> blimey yeah that, that is one one hell of a journey isn't it for you well I want to go straight to your philosophy I actually read your books out of order I read Education Exposed 2 first before I read education exposed one and of course the title of your second book is what is the halcyon dream and how do we successfully pursue this so that's the question to put into you Mm. what is the halcyon dream and and how do we pursue it yeah and it does tie in really seamlessly with my philosophy on on education actually and again if I was to kind of rewind to why did I become a teacher and it's those kind of x-factor style answers of wanting to make a difference wanting to help kids wanting to enlighten children educationally and if I think about my own subject domain history it's about engaging kids in history and sharing my passion and love and enthusiasm for that subject and wanting them to love it as much as I do and that's kind of why I entered teaching to become a history teacher and kind of very naively I went into the profession thinking that you know your subject knowledge and you can teach kids and that's it you know that's all there is to it there's nothing else I mean I referenced when I, when I was talking about my experiences you know to date as an NQT teaching eight different subjects uh, you know to a level standard as an NQT literally fresh faced out of university you know still covered in zits and whatever else but you know still in my nappies but you know that made it a really tough gig and unnecessarily so actually and I think through my career of experiences I've had or conversations with colleagues and friends in other schools where 
they're, they're being asked to do varying things that just detract actually from the purpose of what we're actually trying to achieve. I think so often it's forgotten that the magic happens in the classroom. That's where the biggest difference takes place in, in schools. To my mind, you've got to get the the conditions, the systems, the behaviour right to allow teachers to teach. You've got to give, I would argue, the bulk of your directed time. Be brave, give it to departments, give it to subject communities within your school, give it to your staff to think about their curriculum, to think about their subject knowledge, to think about how they've planned and sequenced, you know, the enactment of that curriculum as well, that, and time to, to build resources, whatever approach you might take as a school. We use workbooks and knowledge organisers in my school. For me, the Halcyon dream is allowing teachers to teach and getting rid of all the white noise and chaff and red tape that actually detracts from that. And, and ultimately, if, if what you're going to introduce has no direct in positive impact on the teaching and the learning, not that you can measure learning, within classrooms, don't do it. I, I guess that's really what underpins kind of my educational philosophy with a real passion for knowledge. Sam, just to tap into subject specialists, and this is the time of the year where everyone's desperate to see their timetables for next year. I was pressing <laughs> deputy head for the, for, for the curriculum tonight for the timetables. What's your view and feeling on giving teachers um, time in their non-specialist subjects, having been someone himself who has you know, been on the receiving end of, of being chucked in that position? I think a member of staff has got to want to do it. I, th I think this is the distinction, really, between being thrown in the deep end and, you know, basically told sink or swim and good luck and don't come back our way if, if you struggle, you know, tough. Um, I think you've actually got to want to experience a different subject. You've got to have a, you know, a, a desire, a fervour to, you know, again, I think back to my own experience, to want to go and teach PE. I actually wanted to teach PE to give me a totally different feel, completely different discipline that, and this isn't knocking PE, at that point in time, it was mostly core PE that was being taught in the school I was working in. There was very little theoretical PE. I wanted to see how practical subjects worked. And I was a martial art instructor outside of school, so I wanted to see kind of how, how loosely or otherwise, you know, some of the, the principles of running a martial arts class could apply to running a PE class. Completely different. Again, really naive to have ever thought you could do the two seamlessly and, and simultaneously in the same way. But, but I do think if you force someone down, you know, you've got to go and teach psychology. I'm really sorry you know you're a history teacher you've got to go and do it I think you're probably likely to get someone that ultimately is going to become quite resentful if they don't take to it and they struggle and actually it can cause a hell of a lot of stress I mean I'm a huge believer in subject knowledge and I think about how you should engage pupils within your, your, your lessons and the questioning that you need to be able to engage them if you're really going to stretch and challenge children and teach them to the top you can't do that if you haven't got expert subject knowledge and if you're unconfident within yourself and you're always thinking I'm actually just a step ahead within the, the textbook please don't ask me a question you're never going to stretch those kids so I would say it, there's a real a real caution to doing it you've got to have a member of staff that's willing that's quite a long-winded answer but that's that's my own belief I think you should have people that are willing to do it we had Abby Bayford on mm. what several weeks ago now I keep saying it's a few weeks ago but actually it's quite a while ago we had Abby on now and she was talking about early years teachers and the stress that early years teachers mm. are on. Just reflecting on what you said your NQT year was like. And in all fairness, when I was an NQT, I'm an RE specialist, but I had I was asked to teach four separate subjects and I was asked to teach two of them up to A level. 
if that was you now and you had yourself coming in as an NQT, <laughs> what, what, what would you say to your NQT self? And what as your NQT self would you now say to that head teacher? <laughs> and I appreciate my previous answers, very secondary orientated. And I'm absolutely in awe of the primary phase teachers in my own school and primary teachers in general, because they do, they have to spin so many different plates, you know, every single day. But yeah, in terms of what would I tell myself retrospectively? Um, if you're thrown in the deep end, you've got to teach four subjects as an NQT. I'd be saying be really, really organised. And as much as it's horrible, use this summer period before you start your job for real to be planned, um, to begin to read around the subject to the subjects you don't know. The other, the other, I would argue, misconception, and you know, RE will be the same as history here, is that because you're an RE teacher, you know everything about RE, everything. If you're a history teacher, you know everything about history. And again, in that NQT year, I had to teach the English Civil War. Well, I can tell you how long I'd spent studying the English Civil War at uni, and uh, I spent probably more time drinking carlings than I did, you know, studying the English Civil War. My specialism was American history, so I knew nothing about that as well. So you're trying to upskill on that front. But I'd also advise myself as an NQC to think, and I didn't do this, you know, really honestly, to think really clearly about the routines for learning. And it was something, again, if I think back, wasn't really ever talked about back then, sort of 20 odd years ago, how pupils should come into a classroom, how they should orchestrate themselves. I remember having kind of two workshops on behaviour and they, the kind of the sum of the parts really was to have palms down and a calm voice and to raise your eyebrows if you were disapproving over something. That's not behaviour training. So, yeah, I would, I would advise myself to use this time to upskill as much as possible and to think really carefully about your routines that you want to have within your classroom environment and, and to draw on whatever limited experience you've got from your training as well. I think I've only answered half your question. Can you remind me of the second part of the question? I'm really sorry, James. No, no, I was just saying as a head... Would you ever put an NQT in that position? As it, have you been there yourself to do that? Right, okay, sorry. Yeah, I, I've been really fortunate, actually, that we've, we haven't done that to any of our NQTs, and I don't propose to either. Uh, we've got a, a fully stocked uh, school of staff who are all specialists in their own domain. And my, my own belief is I want subject specialists in their own wheelhouses. I don't want the James Milner effect of someone that can play in, everyone, in every position. I don't want to force people into that. Great if you've got staff that can do it and want to do it. That's very, very different. But to actually force people to do that, I'm, I'm not interested. I don't believe that's the right thing to do. Not at a secondary level. At a primary level, it's a very different beast and a very different entity because they have to bounce from one subject to the next almost every 30 to 60 minutes and that's that's a tough gig i said earlier i'm an re teacher by trade and i teach kids all about every god from every single religion however you've got one god and that's curriculum so how do we make curriculum our, our one true god then oh if i think about my own school and the trajectory of, of what we, we we tried to do and what i argue we have done really i took over a school that was really in, in chaos and crisis um, and the first thing i would argue is to get behavior right get the culture and the climate and the ethos of the school right you cannot talk you know credibly as a head as a senior leader as a middle leader about the curriculum to your staff if there's a riot happening every two seconds you can't talk about brilliantly planned lessons with the pope giving a sermon and david beckham doing free kicks if every kid is just going to turn their back or tell you to f off it's going to fall on deaf ears ultimately so to make the curriculum god the first thing is to get the conditions of the school absolutely right um, and that you've got the pupils where you want them to be and that they understand what the line is 
and what the expectations within the school are. I think that the second thing to allow the curriculum to be God is actually the routines for learning as well. So we've got the behaviour aspect, but then we've also got the approach and attitude to learning, because that's kind of the next layer with behaviour when you're trying to drive things forwards. Uh, and having really clear routines for learning that allow staff um, to, engage, to engage the pupils, to inspire the pupils, but also to push the pupils along at a greater speed than perhaps you were doing previously. And what we found with really clear systemised routines for learning was that the expectations kind of went from fairly low, and that's not to discredit the staff, but staff were getting through the PowerPoints they used to deliver in an hour within sort of 15 minutes because the kids were, were switched on. And then suddenly the, le the level of expectation kind of cranks up and up and up and up because staff realise they've got to plan more and more and more and expect more and more of the kids. And then they can do things that they weren't able to do before, like read with the children, read you know key academic works out loud. And I think the, the other side in terms of how we make the curriculum god it goes back to that whole idea of the house in dream workload what are we actually doing that allows staff to focus their their sole attention actually on the curriculum if your school improvement plan's got a hundred thousand initiatives and they're changing every two seconds staff aren't going to be with you even if you're not changing them every two seconds but there's a hundred thousand initiatives staff are going to be thinking whoa there's just too much here to think about my overall view is that you focus on one big driver in any one given academic year to try and get it up and running and get it to roughly where you want it to be Curriculum's a big beast. That's, that takes more than an academic year. I think it takes about seven, if I'm really honest, to get it kind of where you really want it to be. You can make quick wins and you can accelerate quite quickly within a team to four months. But I think to really get where you want it to be, it, it takes longer than that. So it's prioritising. It's making it a priority. And, and, and within that, when you try and make something a priority, it's repeating the same messages over and over and over and ensuring that any centralised training that you run focuses on that. I appreciate we've got the statutory stuff in the background that we've got to do otherwise we're blown apart if we don't do safeguarding gdpr etc but the, the the bulk of the training that we offer to our staff if, if the curriculum is going to be god should be around curriculum and i think again it's being brave with the directed time that we've got do we always need a staff meeting every week that's now long can we give that time back to staff to work in teams to get on with thinking about the curriculum themselves if I've trained up my middle leader layer and this is what we did again in the first kind of 18 months that I was in post where I am whilst we're getting the culture and the climate and the behavior right we were also training middle leaders in what a knowledge rich curriculum was simultaneously but we didn't hit the big red button to say go on that until we got the school where we wanted to wanted it to be so that staff could then really think about curriculum but also then I gave the lion's share of directed time to middle leaders and said crack on I just want you to plan your curriculum it needs to look kind of broadly like this in a holistic sense but every subject has got its own natural identity as well. Sam just want to go back a little bit over the behaviour stuff that you mentioned because obviously you're very prevalent on Twitter and I'll, I'll if I get a chance we'll talk to the listeners a little bit about your, your, your Twitter account and how to get hold of the two books we mentioned. But Twitter is awash with lots of opinion and also lots of criticism on methods of behaviour management for people like yourself, Catherine Burble singh Tom Bennett, Barry Smith. Barry managed to squirm away from us this year. We haven't had him on, but he's due to come on in, uh, in the next season. Uh, in your classrooms, you've got very clear expectations. The students sit in rows. They sit boy, girl. You've got the doors open at all times. Stationary pots, a workbook approach. Can you let the listeners know, let's say you had to pick three key things about behaviour that you've introduced, what would those three key things be? Yeah, so the first one would be 
absolute clarity over the rules, over the expectations, and to make those rules and expectations really, really simple. Again, if I think back to when I started at my school, we had this giant flow diagram that kind of spun over over an A3 side of, of paper with you know arrows going in different directions that if you did this, this happened, that, that happened, that, that happened. And all of the detentions were decentralised. They were dealt with by, by subject teachers. I think only about 43% of detentions in the year that I joined, as I was joining, were actually sat by kids. No one knew what they were giving detentions for. Staff ended up screaming at kids because you know, where do you go when, when no one's attending your detention? There's no follow through for six to eight weeks other than to just to lose it which obviously that doesn't work and that's not healthy so yeah first thing is to make your rules your your expectations really clear really easy to understand and keep them really really simple and i would have minimal number of expectations that are based in common sense and I appreciate people have different definitions of what common sense means. The second thing that we felt made a huge difference was sheer visibility of, of leaders both pastoral staff and of senior leaders. If you're going to mean what you say, you've got to have your boots on the ground. You've got to be walking the corridors where you see staff that in those initial phases aren't engaging with the expectations that you expect. You've got to ask them, you know, is everything OK? Is there a reason why you weren't able to do that? Do we need to give you more support? Do we need to give you more training? And there were definitely points, again, when I think that's that first 18 months where I had to reflect and think maybe the training hasn't sat as well as it could have done with some of the staff, rather than being critical of staff. But equally, that visibility is also to say to the kids, we're in charge of the school. You know, we run this school. We, we mean what we say. We do expect you to learn. We do expect the teachers to be able to teach. And I think the third thing, if I was just going to pin this down to three, is having a system that supports teachers so teachers can be the expert in the classroom. I do not want staff to be the guide at the side or, you know, the facilitator that can only talk for five minutes. And there's a stopwatch going off. And I've seen, you know, approaches like that where people got clipboards. You spoke for too long. There wasn't enough pace because you were talking too much. You, I, I think everything should be geared. So they're actually the teacher is the, the focus point within the lesson. I think back to the days of old with questioning where closed questions were seen to be a really bad thing. Closed questions are really a positive you know, th this whole idea of I remember getting really negative feedback about keeping the ball too much and giving kind of feedback like that to staff in my career as well in my earlier phase of my career. And actually, that's that's actually really wrong because those closed questions are just as important as open open ended questions. And I think when we start to specify things to that level, we're, we're kind of losing the plot, really. So, yeah, making sure that the teacher's the expert and, and the conditions allow that to happen. Dan messaged me one weekend. He said, you've got to read these books, Education Exposed. And I, I said, you know what, I'm going to read them and I'll beat you to read both of them because he was reading the one. I don't know whether it did, Dan, but I read, I read your book, Sam, in, in probably about two or three days. And that was one of the nice things about them. They're not too heavy in terms of content. The, the, the message is very, very clear and, you know, there's a lot of clarity. But they're fairly short books just for the listeners listening if they haven't had the opportunity. I'm just looking at your Twitter. So it's Sam Strickland at Strickomaster. And on, on your Twitter page, 22 and nearly just over 22 and a half followers. You are popular. <laughs> I don't know how that's happened. <laughs> Well, very, very, very modest as well. But there's a link to Amazon on there as well, isn't there? Also, uh, John Cat Education Publishers. So if any of our listeners want to get hold of, of either of the two books, uh, any, any more books in the pipeline, Sam? Not at the moment. Um, I mean, this year has been solely about 
managing madness really and the and the pandemic and tags and everything else and then trying to prepare the school for september so i, I must say i've not had the time to think about writing anything else who knows maybe i will at another point in time sam can i just go back to this this comment these comments on behavior why do you think people out there on twitter absolutely hammer people like yourselves for being strict for running schools like prisons you know we saw um hackney free school you know mm. took an absolutely unfair pasting from itv you know they're in, um, for the listeners can't see this inverted commas you know their expose on this strict draconian schools which we know is a load of rubbish and, and i'll happily make that that opinion clear you know barry smith has, has helped that school uh, forgive me, I'm not can't remember the name of the head, but they they've done a fantastic job there. Catherine Burbel Singh at uh, Michaela School have done a phenomenal mm. job, etc. But so go back to my question: Why do you think people want to come and give you that criticism? Why are people saying you're strict and and some sort of you know nasty, nasty man? <laughs> I think there's um I think come and visit. Do you know what? Come and visit my school, those schools, see them in action, talk to the kids, talk to the staff and find out a bit more for yourself. I think there's a huge misconception. And I think it's that word strict, isn't it? That, that ultimately we've got people who've got a really ingrained vision of what the word strict means. Uh, and it's a very binary view that strict is somehow this really bad, evil, you know, you hate children type approach. And I think about, I'm not saying you have to be a parent to be a good teacher, but I think back to parenting, my dad parenting me. I would describe my dad as strict. You know, there was a line and I knew if I crossed it, I was going to get into trouble. But I also knew he loved me beyond belief and he would always have my back if something went wrong. He'd probably tell me off behind closed doors. But, you know, publicly, he, w- he would have my back if there was an issue. And, you know, I take the same view really with, with, with education and how we should be running our schools. Yes, there needs to be a line. If you've got a school that's in absolute chaos and crisis when you join it, where every single day 90 kids are walking the corridors of the school, freely telling staff to go forth and multiply. We've got, I think back to my first 12 weeks in my current school, there's a fight every other day. I'm sorry, but you need to get, get a grip of that and get some sense of control and some sense of order. That doesn't mean that you don't love kids, that you haven't got belief in them, that you don't think that they can go on to do great things. It's because they've had a lack of structure and a lack of order that they don't know where the line is. And, you know, human is to her, isn't it? You know, we, we all make mistakes. And actually it's pointing those out to kids and telling them what is right, what is wrong. And in a safe environment, you know, the, the reprimands that we give, the sanctions, those punitive sanctions, ultimately apart from permanent exclusions, you know, obviously some would argue against that, but though, though most of those sanctions ultimately aren't going to destroy a child. They are going to hopefully correct a pupil's behaviour so they don't do it again. But where they do continue to repeat, you get repeat offenders, of course you do. You then got to think about the levels of support that you give those, those particular children and the education around how to behave properly so they don't continue to repeat those mistakes. The last thing that we want is for them to go into the real world and then make those mistakes in what becomes a far more high stakes environment. You know, if I go up to a random person on the streets, tell them to F off and punch them in the face, I'm either going to get into a really serious fight, potentially, or a criminal record. And we don't want that. 
we yeah we want our children as they grow up and become adults to be responsible citizens that contribute positively to society so in terms of those criticisms about schools being you know, overly strict i think it's misconceptions i think actually if you were to kind of politically put this on a a political spectrum. Twitter makes it look like there's a left-right continuum, that you've got the left, which are the progs, and the right, which are the trads, and there's nothing in between. You either love kids or you hate kids. You're either, you know, strict or you're, you know, engaging in an edutainment party. And I think it's more like a horseshoe. I think the left and right have got far more in common than they want to admit. I don't describe myself as a trad. I know some people do. I, I describe myself as an educator, as a teacher, and a principal. And I'm here to educate kids. And in the context and setting that I work in, I will do the right thing for that setting. In a different context, in a different setting, I might do things differently. But actually, a lot of the systems we've got would work in any school, I would argue. You've just got to be, you know, you've got to be open minded as well, but also train people in how you want things to, to, to run. But I do think, sorry, again, long winded answer. I think it's down to misconceptions. And I would say go visit those schools. I think if we were at a live conference now, you'd have got a stand innovation for that little uh, that, that little soliloquy there or that little monologue. 100% that had been a, a standing up. Okay, let's go back to the classroom. Sam, this is a massive question. What does effective teaching and learning look like? Okay, so effective teaching is where you've got really clear habitual routines that the pupils and the member of staff clearly engage with. The teacher is able to teach. The, the culture, the climate within that classroom allows that to happen and that the pupils engage with that member of staff positively and want to learn and the teacher is able to do so is a short answer. So we're pastoral assistant head teachers. We introduced and developed the house system in our school, mm -hmm. brought in vertical tutoring, brought in student leadership, positive competition, fundraising, charities, rewards, recognition, all those sort of things that Brilliant. the school have been lacking. Mm. What are your thoughts on the house system in itself? And due to the fact that you've talked about how difficult this year has been, do you think any of this is going to be able to come back properly in September? Yes. Yeah, so we introduced a house system. Um, pretty much as soon as I joined my school because whilst we wanted to get behaviour right and and have the, the lines in the sand of what was permissible and what wasn't it, it didn't take particularly long in fact I knew this is going to be the case anyway that you know the vast vast majority of kids are on board with the school and all they wanted was that somebody to take a grip but also they wanted to be celebrated for all the positive things they were doing so we've got four houses based around trees all the pupils are in the house. They wear a, a badge that goes on the lapel of their blazer to signify the house they belong to. Sick formers and staff of a, a lanyard uh, that's coloured to the house that they belong to. I think it's utterly brilliant. Um, you know, that kind of Hogwarts style feel, I just think is incredible. That sense of friendly competition that every week we've got a house competition ordinarily when you take out the COVID universe that pupils can compete in. And it's not just sport. It could be things like a spelling bee, a poetry recital, you know, all those other things that make the curriculum really, really rich and vibrant. Every house in our school's got a house charity and they raise money towards that charity. You know, we celebrate the kids' successes for things they do outside of school. We will allow them to have a, a non-uniform day if they're the house that wins that particular year. I just think it's fantastic. And the kids do as well. And having those house assemblies that we would normally have, where you've got the vertical house that comes in all the way from, you know, early years through to post 16, I just think is utterly incredible. And, and my hat off to you for, for introducing one. I think it's brilliant and I think it's the right thing to do. And yet yeah, we should be platforming, celebrating kids at every opportunity that we get. 
which a house system would allow you to absolutely do. Come September, I really hope that we can go back to it. I'm sure you're probably the same in that regard that a lot of the competitions and events you'd normally house and run uh, that kind of give the school that extra level of vibrancy and really show that you care even more so I, I just pray that we can have it all back to normal I really really do. Sam I'm going to expose James here we had a competition one lunchtime so we had a lot of litter in in the hall uh, each lunchtime or when house events were on we ran a competition we bought four coloured house bins and whichever house coloured bin had the most litter in it at the end of lunch, they won X amount of house points. We also had two bins that were just general refuse. They were just, you know, standard black bins. At the end of lunch, James was that desperate to win. He picked up one of the black bins and emptied litter into his own bin to cheat the, to cheat the, ah! to cheat the community. And I've also heard... <laughs> that recently he's been caught cheating in our answer smash quiz at school, but he's been accused of of cheating as well in that. (laughs) Right. I'll take the bin incident. I'll fully admit (laughs) to the bin incident. It was lying there. I I saw red. I can't help it. Even though it's not my house colour. The answer smash, I am not taking that (laughs) at all. I was simply in there engaging with children while they were trying to work out the answers. He's a cheat. (laughs) <laughs> but that's the other side of a house system, isn't it? It brings staff, you know, out of yeah. their shells. It brings staff together. It develops that sense of community and that sense of competition amongst staff as well, which the kids love. They love it when you kind of poke and jibe one another about how you're going to beat, you know, the other house. They think it's great. You know, it's all theatre. It's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I say this to people all the time. Teaching, there's so much acting that goes with it, doesn't it? When you step into the classroom, you are on a stage. You are 100% in the arena. It can be lions and tigers attacking you. It can be, you know, a crowd (laughs) baying for your blood. Or it can be people standing and clapping and celebrating you. I was just saying, we've got we've got staff around us tomorrow, so that's always uh, that's always the most competitive. You know, I just hope uh, I hope no one gets badly injured because it's. uh, I remember (laughs) last time we played, it was yeah, it was. uh, it was definitely a battle. Yeah, I do miss it. I, I, I do miss this, you know, what we've, we haven't been able to have this year. Yeah, it makes a huge difference to morale, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Sorry, Mike, over to you, mate. No, no, it's absolutely, it's, it's all good stuff. So we're going to mix this up with a little bit of rapid fire section on a uh, question, Sam. So quick answers on these. If you can limit your answers to a sentence or under a sentence, couple of words, absolutely perfect. It's always difficult, probably not as bad as being grilled by Ofsted, but maybe, you know, not too far from that. So word association. So I'm, I'm going to start off with these. If I give you the word marking, what would you say? Whole class feedback. Emails. Don't do them at weekends and holidays. Department time. Give them as much as they need to be able to prioritise the curriculum. You're very good at this. I like you practised before. Middle leaders. <laughs> the engine room of the school. Trust them and give them everything they need. Data drops. Keep them to as few as is humanly possible because most of the data is a waste of time. Mock exams. Again, very similar to data drops. Keep your mock exams few. We don't need loads. Um, so they actually mean something. We're talking education now, not, not Cambridge United at Peterborough. Away days. <laughs> Away days are really important um, and I would promote them. Absolutely. And especially to go and visit other schools as well. Final one. You've, I think you're passing this test. Hope this one doesn't trip your parents' evenings. After this year, keep them online. They've worked really well. 
Sam, I wanted to ask your opinion on this. I read Michael Childs' book a couple of months ago and we had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and we're talking about feedback to parents. And I've just yeah. posed this question. Is one five-minute meeting with a parent in June or July good use of our time? Instead, could we reinvest those 15 to 30 hours of parents' evening time so we don't have one formal feedback time once per year? We actually have continual time with departments that happens regularly should we scrap parents evening yeah it's a hard one isn't it because it's statutory and, and that's not meant as like my fudge response here so we're, we're expected to have a, a parents evening for every year group every once a year every year but i'd agree the whole idea that we're going to under ordinary circumstances be bundled into a room for four or five hours and then on a conveyor belt probably say broadly the same things for probably about 80% of the kids, we don't need to say anything at all because they're doing really, really well and they're where they need to be. The kids you really want to see often don't turn up because they know it's going to be bad news or the parents already know it's going to be bad news. I mean, my view is that at a parent's evening, there should be no surprises. It shouldn't say anything different to the report. So you, if, if you've read the report for your child, you kind of know what you're going into, uh, you know, in terms of what's going to be said. And I think actually it's it's... What we lose is what happens in real time if that suddenly becomes the only focus, those you know big annual parent evenings. And I'd rather have a far more fluid system where we're entrusted actually as a profession. Let's get rid of the you must have an annual parents evening. But you but instead maybe have a caveat of there should be parental dialogue and engagement where appropriate and, and entrust us to do it the right way. I'd rather see that personally. Can I throw one more word association sentence association? Restorative practice. Okay. You need to be very, very well trained, expertly trained to do this properly. And it, I think it should only be used in really specific circumstances. If it is the main thrust and MO of your behaviour system, I, I think you're potentially going to engage in a recipe for disaster. And certainly a lot of the longitudinal studies around restorative justice use in schools, maybe not all schools, I'm sure there's schools that use this brilliantly, um, tend to be that you see a positive increase in behaviour for a, a period of time, six to 12 months, and then it starts to dip once the pupils realise that there isn't really a line in the sand, that everything is just going to revolve around a conversation. But I think if you're going to use it, you need to be really well trained. You've got to really time it carefully. And it should only be, again, if you're going to, if you're going to use a restorative approach, I think you need a, a set team of people that are trained in it. It can't just be something that's just wielded out across everybody because the, the sensitivity of the discussions that you'll have in a restorative environment you know, are huge. And if you get it wrong, my God, the damage you'll do is, is, is incredible, actually, you know, incredible in a bad way. Sam, so we have had the pleasure to have been joined by Michael Childs a couple of weeks ago. And last week we had Catherine Morgan and Jay Pierce on with us talking all things CPD. As a principal, you've always ensured that CPD is a high priority in everything that you do. And at your school at Dustin, you've got the Dustin Action Research Team, DART, can you tell us about that and, and your strategy to have your SLT look into various areas of research? Yeah, so if I start with the DART initiative, DART um, was set up just as I joined the school and, and I, I kind of empowered two of my assistant principals to drive this. And we weren't really sure how many staff were going to jump on board with it to begin with, but it, it actually turned out to be really, really popular uh, amongst staff. And about a quarter of the staffing body are part of this action research group. And we give them 
ring fence days. We give them three ring fence days in the academic year um, to get together and to meet and to talk about research that they've looked at themselves. They all engage in a research project of their own interest that will help benefit themselves um, or just as an area of interest just to see what difference it will make to their own teaching practice. And they engage in the research around it. They trial it with a group or a series of groups of pupils. Um, we will give them time to go to schools, to research ed events, etc. We give them chartered college status. Um, so through the chartered college and access to, to master's degrees as well. And every Friday morning, this particular group meet at eight o'clock to talk about research and the kind of the progress that they're making. They maintain a blog and they deliver um, insect training to staff within my own school. And they've also spoken at events uh, such as Educating North Ants and Research Ed um, as well. And it, what it's, it has done is developed an interesting research across the school. Uh, it's gone from being this kind of, is this just a you know, fad? Is this just some sort of sexy thing that's going to come and go and disappear? To actually there's real integrity, um, academic integrity to actually looking at research because we also share where things go wrong and where things don't work. So it's not just, you know, this wonderful sweet shop saying, oh, look how amazing it is. There are certain, you know, there are certain things that just haven't worked in our context and our setting. I think we need to share that as well openly with one another. I mean, from my own perspective, I, I am big on research. I do think it's really, really important that we we look at research when we're um, going to come up with a new initiative, a new idea within the context of our schools, whatever level we are within our school, uh, but also to go to schools that already do it to see how it actually works in practice and what were the pitfalls and the drawbacks and successes so that you don't hopefully make those same mistakes. But also by perhaps going to a couple of schools to see something in action, it gives you, a, a, again, a greater sense of will this actually work in our context and our setting as well. And I'm very big on my staff going out on the road to look at other schools. And I've had to do that a couple of times to convince staff of things as well. I mean, one of my senior leaders was bitterly opposed to workbooks and went to, um, to Magna in Poole down in Dorset. And as soon as that particular senior leader came out of the school, phoned me instantly and went, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I was wrong, you were right, these are amazing. And he's the biggest advocate for them. Uh, and actually it's probably the reason why they've been such a, such a success in my school, because that particular leader has really driven them for me. Sam, we're coming to the end of, end of the podcast, just to remind people, this is going to be our last one of the season. We've saved the best till last, Sam. So really appreciate you coming to join us tonight. We've got, we, we, we put you on the spot a few minutes ago with the quick fire rapid section, but we've got our fun questions, similar, similar kind of theme on, on moving away from education, just to find out a little bit more about you and, and what you like. So I'll, I'll get started off. Uh, simple question. I don't know if you've listened to the podcast, Sam, but you'll, you'll probably recognise this one. Are you a tea man or a coffee man? Coffee. A complete coffee addict and probably have far too much. Coffee's, coffee's done a little bit of an Italy, hasn't it? I mean, tea certainly had the first half of our series and now coffee in the second half has been very, very strong. So lots of, lots of, cafe, lots of people on caffeine been speaking <laughs> to. Moving slightly off tea and coffee onto the, the subject of alcohol. When pubs recently reopened, what was the first drink that you ordered at the bar, Sam? I have to say I've not been back since they've reopened. <laughs> I, I actually, in term time, this is really bad. I don't drink in term time because I, that, I can't afford to wait feeling like death. That is, a, that is such a professional answer. Okay, mix <laughs> then. You're with the lads, away day for Cambridge, ah. going to Peterborough, and you're in the pub just beforehand with all the lads. Big game. Oh, gosh. <laughs> what are you ordering? Probably a Foster's, which is a really typical cheesy beer, isn't it? But yeah, probably go for that. <laughs> okay, hopefully an easier one for you then. 
singers you like working out, when you are, what's your top artist on Spotify? Oh, gosh. I've got a real mix. I'm a bit old school, so Dr. Dre comes on quite a lot. If you were shipwrecked on a desert island where all your food and water needs were taken care of, obviously no alcohol there, <laughs> what two things would you take with you that can't be used for survival? Probably my eye watch. That kind of is glued to my, my side when I'm working out and, uh, and keeping fit. I think what else would I take with me? Not for not... Probably my bench press, which is in my carriage. <laughs> What's the greatest piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, when I became an assistant head, I had a deputy head that mentored me. And on day one, she said, this, this is no longer about you. It's about everybody else. And I, I remember walking away bemused thinking, she's mental. She's, this, this, this deputy's crazy. And my God, she was so right. It, once you, be, you step into the higher echelons of being you know, a middle leader, a senior leader, it is about how you deal with all the other people. I think it was cracking advice. Yeah, that certainly puts some pressure on the shoulders, doesn't it? Yeah, fantastic, that is. And our final question for you tonight, what next for Sam Strickland? What next? Uh, to try and make our school better and better, um, to be honest. Um, I mean, I'm hugely proud of where we're at and, and what we've achieved so far. Uh, and I just want to see the school go from strength to strength. And I, and I want to be there to help that happen. Sam, just remind me of the name of the school that you're at currently. It's the Dustin School. The Dustin School. So I'm, I'm sure, I mean, obviously you, you did mention, I don't know whether we'll put this into the podcast or not, you mentioned you'd recently been said Ofsted yeah. so we look forward to hearing I know you can't announce anything at the moment but we look forward to hearing the outcome of that obviously the students at Dustin School with your passion for research and, and, and just your approach your down-to-earth approach and straightforward approach they're surely in good hands and, and it sounds like you're doing a great job we really appreciate you coming on our podcast tonight hopefully you'll be able to join us maybe in season two or season three, brilliant. you know, just to give us an update on what you're up to and stuff, because it's always brilliant to speak to people who are at the forefront of educational research and discussion. Sam Strickland, Stricko Master, thanks for joining us on the More Than A Job podcast. Thanks for having me. 